The following sermon was preached in the Sunday gathering of First Baptist Church of Wisconsin Rapids, Wisconsin. We pray it bears fruit in your life, and we hope that you share it with others who might also benefit. At the same time, if you're not already, we encourage you to join a faithful local church where you can sit under the preaching of God's word and observe the ordinances. Visit firstbaptistwr.com for more information. Father, we pray that you would be with us this morning. Pray that you would help us as a church to understand the distinction between the law and the gospel. I pray that none of us here would be laboring under the law as a covenant or under our own law that we've made up in order to achieve righteousness. I pray that you'd convict us of our sin and our lack in light of your law. And let us look to Christ alone for righteousness and life, even now in the preaching of your word. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So, seven days ago, last Sunday, we heard from the Apostle Paul about his ambition in life. He spoke of what drives him. He spoke of his passion to press on toward the goal of resurrection life. We learned that Paul's motive to strive to attain that goal, to attain to that prize, which he calls it, of resurrection, that upward call of God in Christ Jesus, it was not in order to avoid judgment. It wasn't out of a fear. But Paul's motive in striving and going for the gold, so to speak, in the Christian life was also not in order to attain a title to eternal life. We know this because Paul said that Christ and life, in one sense, were already his. He said in verse 12, Christ had laid hold of him already. So he's in Christ's hand already. He's already laid hold of him. As Jesus says in John 6, 37, All the Father gives me will come to me, and the one who comes to me I will by no means cast out. And in another place, he says, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me, and I give them eternal life, and they shall never perish, neither shall anyone snatch them out of my hand. Paul does not work in order to attain life, but he works because he's attained life by faith in Christ. Christ and all that's his is already Paul's, by grace alone, through faith alone. And because of what Christ has done for him, because Christ has made Paul his own, and he's won the victory, he's finished the race for Paul, therefore, because of that, Paul presses on to make Christ's righteousness and life his own, actually and fully. It's this process of sanctification, making progress in the Christian life. Paul presses on to die more and more to his old life of sin and to live this new life as a new creation in Christ Jesus. As Paul says elsewhere, Christ bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. Titus 2.14 says Christ gave himself for us to purify for himself his own special people, zealous for good works. So we do not die to sin to attain righteousness in life, but we die to sin because Christ has already given us 
righteousness in life. So it's from life, not for life, by grace, through faith in the blood of his cross. And Paul instructed the church that all should have this same mind to press on in light of the gospel of grace. And for those who have not yet attained to that mind, that they would press on to have that same mind more and more, that they would keep making progress and maturing. And now in our passage for today, as Paul has just laid down his example of the mind and pattern of life they ought to have, now he goes on to exhort and urge them to follow his example and pattern of life that he set down, and also to beware of those who act contrary to it, because their vindication is coming in Christ. So let's look to our passage for today. Paul writes, Brethren, join in following my example, and note those who so walk, as you have for us a pattern. Paul commands the church to be fellow imitators with him and of him. He wants them to imitate him as he imitates Christ. Now the word for imitate here, or to follow his example, it has a special particle on the beginning of the word to specially indicate they should partake with others in imitating. So it's a collective thing. They're all doing individually, but together. So together, all follow the same example. This is a theme in the book of Philippians, like-mindedness, striving side by side together for the faith of the gospel, this unity. So do not complain or dispute with one another. Do nothing from envy or rivalry. Join in following Paul's example, even as Paul is following Christ's example, which he put forward in chapter 2. He said that Christ left heaven and the glory of heaven above, and he took the form of a servant, a lowest servant. He died the low, lowest death of a cross, the death of a common criminal. And he sought not only his own good, but the good of many, that they might be saved. He became that servant. He descended to the lowest depths so that he might free captives and lead them to the highest heights of glory along with him. As Ephesians 2.6 says, God raised us up together with Christ and made us sit together in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So this way of the cross, this death to sin, life to righteousness, is central to this book of Philippians. And Paul emphasized it again in last week's passage. Now, as I was saying, Paul urges the Philippians to follow his example. I remember when I was a young kid uh, growing up on the farm. It was the summer, and I didn't have a whole lot to do. just used my imagination and spend the day however I thought. I saw my cat uh, with her kittens going across the yard towards the cornfield. And I thought, well, I'll just follow them and see what they do. So I followed them through the cornfield all the way back to the woods. And then they got to the woods. I saw that everything the mom did, the kittens did. So she would walk along a down tree, and those kittens would follow her up the tree. If she pounced, they would pounce. If she jumped, they would jump. If she crouched down and tried to sneak around, they would do that too. They imitated everything she did. She was teaching them how to be 
cats, how to live like a feline. And those kittens would mess up, they'd fall off the log, and then they'd claw and scratch and try to get back up. They messed up, but they were learning. We see the same thing with a daughter and her mother, or a son and a father. For better or worse, kids imitate their parents. Paul wants the Philippians to imitate him in that same way, to be fellow imitators of his example in this way of the cross. And he says to note those who so walk, as you have for us a pattern. So Paul's saying, I'm not the only one walking this way. There's others too. He's put forward Epaphroditus earlier in this epistle, who he said risked his life to, lack what was, to, to serve in what was lacking in their service to him in his imprisonment. And he also put forward Timothy, his right-hand man in these epistles, who had also suffered much to serve the saints in the gospel of Christ. Paul says to watch those men, mark them, keep an eye on them. As Paul says in chapter 2, verse 29, hold such men in high esteem. Make them your role models. They're risking their lives. They're pouring out their lives in service to Christ in his church, in his gospel. They've counted their former life of sin filth, and they press on to lay hold of Christ, who made them his own by faith alone. That word translated note means to pay careful attention. As I've been saying, watch it like a cat with those sharp feline eyes. Note men who walk in this way. When Paul says walk, He doesn't mean literally walking. He means living in a certain way, having a certain manner of life. So note those who make it their habit in life to strive for righteousness, to lay hold of Christ in his resurrection from the dead, because Christ has laid hold of them. Note those who do these things, and who know that even when they fall short of that righteous standard, because Christ has attain that standard for them already, they can keep going on and not wallow in guilt or shame. They press on toward the goal for the prize. Imitate those men. Take their life, their ambition, and watch it. Make it the pattern of your life. Fit your life onto that pattern. Be like them. Make them your role models. Some things are better caught than taught. You just pick it up from watching people. So die to sin, live to righteousness like these men are doing. Live for your own rational self-interest. Now as Paul has given them a positive pattern to follow, he also warns them of a negative pattern they might be tempted to follow. He says, For many walk, of whom I have told you often, and now tell you even weeping, that they are enemies of the cross of Christ, whose end is destruction, whose God is their belly, and whose glory is in their shame, who set their mind on earthly things. So Paul says that he urges them to follow this example of faithful brothers like himself and Timothy and Epaphroditus, because many, even some of whom profess to be Christian brothers, they walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Paul is warning them not to follow this contrary example and pattern. He says that he's told them often of these kind of people, even weeping as he writes it. 
that they are enemies of the cross of Christ. Now, some of the people Paul has marked out earlier in his epistle are those he called dogs, mutilators of the flesh, and evil workers. And he also might have in mind those in chapter 1 who he said preached Christ out of envy and rivalry and not sincerely. They were those who wanted to use Christ and his message for short-term sinful gain rather than pouring out their lives in worship of him. And there are those who add works unto faith as the means by which we gain justification and life. They were teaching another gospel. So the world is an ugly place. We see bad people and impostors going on from bad to worse all around us, just as Paul in the first century said we would. They're deceiving people and being deceived. Paul would not have us follow that example. That is not the Christian way. Paul warns them with tears, knowing these people who do these things as a habit and do not repent will reap destruction. They're enemies of the cross of Christ. They oppose the gospel, even if they try to keep up an appearance of being Christian, just as Paul talks in 2 Timothy of those who have an appearance of godliness, but they deny its power. The cross of Christ is a message of death to sin and living to righteousness. It's a message that says no man alive will ever nor can ever keep the law to perfection. That no man has the merits necessary to achieve righteousness and life. That all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. That all share in the sin of the first Adam. And that if they will be saved, they must throw themselves on the mercy of the last Adam, Christ, who fulfilled everything Adam and all his descendants fell short of doing. The cross is not necessary if men are righteous enough in themselves and able to keep the law for righteousness. The power of the cross is not in an example that Christ made, even though it is an example. That's not where its power lies. Its power is not in the example, but in the grace purchased by Christ's blood on that tree. Its power is in the justice satisfied by Christ's suffering and death in the sinner's place. So let a God hell-bent against sin and sinners on whom he set his love before the foundation of the world, he can give them righteousness and life. He makes a way for them to have fellowship with him. The cross is not a message of God's leniency towards sin. The cross isn't a wink brushing it under the table. The cross is a message of God's exacting and specific vengeance against sin and sinners. That he's not going to just let sin slide. He's not just going to brush it under the table. But if he would, in his great mercy, along with his justice, desire to save some sinners, he would pour out his anger and his wrath against sin and sinners on his son, in their place, in order to satisfy the righteous requirement of his law, that the soul who sins and deserves to die, may instead attain life by faith in Christ. 
And then, and only then, coming to Christ by faith alone, not by any works, then, and only then, is there power to follow in Christ's footsteps and to make Christ's example and Paul's example one's own pattern of life. That you can forget what lies behind and press on toward the goal. You can follow Christ, and just as he gave his life as a ransom for many, and he died the death to sin so that others may have life, so we can walk in the same way now by the power that he supplies. This death to sin, life to righteousness. It's that cross that Paul says these men are enemies of. They're opposed to the cross of Christ. They do violence against it. They seek to overthrow the cross of Christ. Paul says of these men that their end is destruction. Their God is their belly. And their glory is in their shame. Now each one of these things, this description of these people, you notice it's exactly contradictory to the pattern that Paul laid out in the previous verses. They are enemies of the cross of Christ in the Christian way. They're directly opposed to it. They are the photo-negative. This word translated end in verse 19 has the same root in the original language as the word translated perfected in verse 12, and the same word translated mature in verse 15. It's the same root in the original language. So it seems very likely Paul is making a stark contrast here. The end or perfection the Christian strives for is resurrection life. A glorious new body, new creation, heavenly bliss, everlasting life. And in one sense, the Christian already has it by faith through Christ. And he has the down payment of the Holy Spirit. Paul said in verse 12 that he was not already perfected, So he hadn't already reached his goal. But in verse 15, he said that as many as were perfect, so he's saying not perfect, but yet at the same time already perfect in Christ by faith. Those who are perfect should have the mind of striving for perfection. So this already, not yet reality Paul is talking about. But these men who he's marked out here, Their perfection, the fulfilling of their nature, their goal in their manner of life, what they strive for and what they will ultimately earn as wages of their working is destruction. So they're living a life of craving for sin and death, and they'll receive the full reward of that sinful working, that sinful striving. You see, polar opposite, the negative. The wages of sin is death. Hosea 8, 7 says, They sow the wind, and they shall reap the whirlwind. As Paul says, their God is their belly. So their God, what they worship and serve, what they consider the highest authority and governor in their affairs, what they bow down to, make themselves servants and obedient slaves to, is their belly. So how do you make your, your belly your God? The Dutch doctor of theology, Peter Van Maastricht, called this a subtler type of idolatry, this exchanging of God for another God. He described it as a subtler type of idolatry 
as against bowing down to a graven image or stars or the sun or moon or angels, relics or great kings of the past, as people have done throughout history. He says that people commit this form of idolatry by devoting their mind to, by serving, and by building their confidence upon riches, honors, pleasures, and so forth. So the belly, in the language of Scripture, is often denoting the seat of desire. The idea is that just as the belly has a desire for food, it has an appetite for food, so your body has other appetites. And your body will let you know what it's wanting at a certain time. Hungry. Want to eat. Thirsty. Want to drink. I'm tired. I want to sleep. Now, that's good. There's nothing wrong with that. These appetites are not bad in themselves. We are embodied souls. We have physical bodies, and we must attend to the needs of our bodies. This is the body's way of telling the mind what it needs. But the problem is that our bodies, since the fall, have been corrupted. Our appetites are corrupted, and this doesn't always work right. In fact, it's almost always desiring things it shouldn't desire. And when these desires are disordered, when they're not according to nature, they're called lusts or sin. They're craven desires. Not ordered according to the proper end of man, which is the glory of God. They're contrary to nature. They're corrupt. And in a previous sermon, I compared them to a bucking horse, if you remember, a couple months ago. You're riding a horse. Sometimes that horse goes just where you want it to go. It's helping you out. It's working together with you. Sometimes it's got a mind of its own. It wants to head back to the barn. You've got to check it with the bridle, or you've got to constantly prod it to keep it going forward. Or you might have another problem where there's a horse that just wants to run, like a horse they rode in Montana. He was always wanting to go, and he was snorting and pinning back his ears, nipping at the other horses. One time he... Uh, came up behind another horse and stomped his hooves so hard on the bridge behind them that he spooked them, almost caused a wreck. I wasn't riding him that time, but somebody else was. He'd rear back on his hind legs. He'd rock back and forth like a mechanical bull. He was fired up. He was a snorting, high-spirited horse. So it was work to hold him back. But I liked that better than a horse that just wanted to go back to the barn. So, in the same way, our sinful bodies have appetites, desires, even personalities. Sin affects us in different ways. There's different tendencies. But sin does affect all of us in one way or another, and it affects everything about us. There's nothing left untouched by sin. Whenever you want to do good, sin lies close at hand. It wars against your good motives. So it's always easier to do evil than to do good. Our sinful members are hungry to do evil. And the way it is that the more evil you do, the greater your capacity to do evil. The hungrier your body will get for evil, that sinful man in you. Now as a believer, when you give in to sin, God will discipline you. He'll bring you back on the right path. He'll check you if you're his son. Discipline you just like a father disciplines his child. 
But sin, in general, leads to more sin. It affects your character. The more evil you commit, the more evil you become in character. As Scripture says of man in his unregenerate, sinful nature in Adam, his throat is an open grave. The more sin, the wider the mouth of that tomb opens. Now, think about it for a second. What would happen if every time your belly said it wanted to eat something, whatever it was, every time it said it wanted to eat something, you just ate it? We just went through Easter. I think if you ate every piece of Easter candy that you wanted. What if you watched TV every time you wanted? Disobeyed your parents every time you wanted to? What if you quit paying attention in school every time you wanted to? What if you said something mean to the teacher every time you wanted? Or went out for recess every time you wanted? What if you hit your brother or sister every time you felt like it? What if you spent money every time you wanted to or quit your job whenever you wanted to? What if you flirted with a woman or man every time you wanted to? Swore every time you wanted? Took something every time you wanted to? Scripture teaches that all of us, all people, experience these sinful passions. Our bodies, created for good, have become impure vessels with these craven desires for all sorts of wrong things, or good things in the wrong way, at the wrong time, the wrong place. Most people don't give in to every disordered desire, but it comes to be that one or a couple control the others. They dominate them. But then, in your sinful state, even if you do something materially good, that's good in itself, considered in itself, it's done in service of something evil, in service of one's belly, a craven appetite, or a base animal passion to do evil. To live contrary to the cross of Christ and to live for fleeting pleasure and vanity. For example, some men will do nice things for women, but only because they want to get them home and have a nice fling with no commitments. Or some men and women alike will practice great discipline. They'll go to insane lengths to discipline their bodies, eating, sleeping, drinking, for one goal, to be the best athlete, to win a state championship or an Olympic championship. They'll work their fingers to the bone. They'll put off every distraction to be the best in their field. But they do it only for the praise of men, for a fleeting glory in a fading crown, rather than for the praise of God. They want to be great in the eyes of other people, but such praise always disappoints. Paul also says of these people who make their God their belly, who bow down to the basest whims of their lower animal passions, those who let that bucking horse control them and gain the advantage over them in the end, ultimately, he says their glory is in their shame. So those who set their minds on riches, honor, or pleasures, they make them their ultimate glory and joy. They devote themselves to them. They glory in their shame. 
They rejoice, they celebrate, they make a spectacle, they try to draw attention to their shame. They glory in their sin. They glory in the precise thing that should cause them shame, cause them embarrassment, cause them consciousness of guilt. And instead they draw attention to it. They gloat in it. The very thing they ought to want to hide and cover up. Just like Adam and Eve did in the garden after they had sinned. But they don't do that. Instead, they glory in it. They draw attention to it. Now, we can see this breaking loose in our day with bold-faced, premarital, extramarital sex and glorying in it on TV and in movies. We see gay pride parades. Drag queen story hour. And even in some places, drag queen performances in front of children out in public. In the last couple of weeks, uh, apparently Bud Light sent out commemorative cans to a transvestite. Wasn't very popular with their customer base. Not sure what they were thinking there. But they glory in their shame. Their God is their belly. The predominant teaching out there, even in places that call themselves churches, is that basically you're a good person. You have some wrinkles, you need a couple tweaks here and there, maybe you need a little more education, but basically you're a good person. You're a good guy. I'm a good guy. We're all good people. And so when that's the predominant teaching, even from pastors, from these authority figures about religion, when that's the teaching, I'm a good person, so one day I eat something wrong or I watch a program on TV and I get this weird feeling and I think, hey, I'm a guy, but I think I'm attracted to guys. I think I want to be a woman now. I'm a good person. A good person wouldn't want something bad, right? So it must be good. A good person doesn't have bad desires. And since everyone else is a good person too, they're not going to want bad things. They want good things. They should be able to do whatever they want to do as long as they're not hurting anyone else. Well, set aside the fact that they may be hurting themselves, because that doesn't seem to come into consideration. But anyone who tries to tell me I'm doing wrong, they're the bad people. They're haters, and their words hurt me. And, increasingly they're saying, those people who will stand up against them, we actually need to hurt them. And it's not just hyperbole. Recently, Jane Fonda, I don't really know who she is, but some of you might. She appeared on The View and suggested murder as a way to retaliate for the overturning of Roe versus Wade. Murder. <clears throat> so this is, you have to understand, this is a religious system. They have their blasphemy laws, they have their ordinances, they have their sacraments, they have a code of conduct. Do whatever you feel like as long as it doesn't get in the way of everyone else doing whatever they feel like doing in the moment. 
unless that person can't speak for themselves, like a baby in the womb. They have their priests, and they have their God. Their God is their belly. They glory in their shame. And Paul says they set their mind on earthly things. So, like their father, the devil, that ancient serpent who God made slither on his belly and to eat the dust of the earth, these people also have their heads buried in the ground. They're unable to even contemplate or lift their heads to contemplate the glories of heaven and eternity. So they set their minds on earthly things. And now those who God has given up to immorality and lusts, these people who we can see who openly commit shameless acts, these obvious sins out in broad daylight, Certainly, they are a threat to civilization. They're a threat to children. They're a threat to our way of life. This is great evil on the level of Romans 1, where Paul talks about it extensively. This is the height of sin and the full flowering of wickedness. But I want to say that these people are not the greatest threat to the church, they're not our biggest concern. One thing we need to understand, which Satan understands well, is that a snake in the camp is more dangerous than a snake in the grass. Satan's power is in his deception, in his subtlety. His ability to tell a gigantic, earth-rending, life-destroying lie that appears like the truth. Just a Slight tweak here. Just a little twist. Those who are outside the church, not claiming to be Christians, they're openly committing shameless acts. They're not the church's greatest threat or enemy. They may persecute us. Yes, that's a danger. They'll gnash their teeth at us. They'll send their enforcers from the federal government after us. But... The greatest enemies are those who masquerade as servants of Christ. Those who take the name of Christ, but then subtly deny him in their teaching or in their conduct. Paul says there are those who creep into households and capture the naive and the unsuspecting, just as Satan crept into the garden under disguise and captured Eve. Our greatest enemy... The worst profligate, the most crafty and venomous viper, maybe one across the table calling you brother, calling himself brother, taking the name of Christ, just as Judas sat across the table from Jesus. Now, these types are so dangerous because they weaken the influence of Christian teaching. They bring reproach to the name of Christ by teaching in his name things that are contrary to sound doctrine. And so, even though they do not openly oppose the doctrine, they might, in name, they say, well, I don't, I'm not opposing you. I agree with you. Just as the Judaizers would say, yes, believe in Christ. You started well. And now do this also. Add these works onto faith in the matter of justification. It's not an open opposition. But by doing that, they do more harm than if they had openly opposed it. They poison 
the minds of the unsuspecting. They hinder the saints' fruitfulness by teaching them things that are contrary to sound doctrine. They slow the spread of the gospel. They create confusion in the church. They confuse believers and unbelievers about what Christianity really is about. They give opportunity for reproach. They bring in divisions. They undo the work of godly ministers. They cause us to take time and energy to deal with foolish things. They act in a parasitic way, sapping the life out of the church, like leeches sucking the blood of Christ, or like a Trojan horse. They bring in armies of mischief into the household of God. Jesus called them wolves in sheep's clothing. And this is a tactic of Satan to bring his people into the church and cause disorder. My pastor growing up used to say that Satan will dress up in a suit and tie and come to church on a Sunday. He won't show up in his horns, but he'll show up in a more subtle way. So it's like an enemy soldier coming into a camp. He masquerades as a commander, and he eats the provisions of the soldiers, draws them away from the battle line and into the wilderness where there's no battle, they can do no good, and they'll waste away with hunger and thirst. Now, whether it's our rainbow regime or Judaizers, Gnosticism, Islam, Buddhism, Roman Catholicism in its official teaching, the prosperity gospel, Mormonism, Jehovah's Witnesses, there's always this same fundamental theological error. It amounts to a failure to give God the glory he deserves, to take the glory due to his name, to refuse to say that he is the only righteous one, to think that in one way or another a human being can actually attain a title to righteousness and life. To think that actually I'm going to be that one person that does not fall short of the glory of God by my own effort. Whereas Paul, just a few verses before this, he says he counts all of his supposed merits under the law, a Pharisee, an Israelite of Israelites, a Hebrew of Hebrews. Paul calls all that filth. But all of these glory in their shame. They glory in what Paul calls filth. It's a legal spirit. This wanting to do whatever your heart says to do in order to make you feel righteous. Thinking you can prove your righteousness to God. That even though Adam sinned at that tree and you in him, Somehow, you can go back to the garden and make up for it. That God is actually a debtor to you rather than you to him. That God owes you something for your grand performance. That really God must be your servant and you his master and Lord. To exchange the glory of the immortal God for created things, for images, made in the likeness of man, and creeping things, reptiles, anything created. God will not be mocked. 
either received by faith alone the Christ nailed to a tree because Adam sinned at that tree or perish in your sin. Those are God's terms. It's the only way. And we're blessed that there is anyway because of our sin. Christ is the only God. Only the righteousness of God can satisfy God's law. Christ alone. Your own works in whole or in part are never going to measure it up. They're always tainted with sin. And the only part that we can take credit for is the sin. We do not glory in our shame as Christians. We don't glory in our sin. And all of our righteous deeds are tainted with sin. But as Bernard said in a sermon in the 11th century, Shall I sing of my own righteousness? Lord, I will remember your righteousness alone, for it is mine also, and that even you are made unto me the righteousness of God. Let's pray. God our Father, you are God, and you alone are God. I pray that we would give you the glory due to your name, that we would put nothing in your place. I pray that you would help us to set our hope on Christ and Christ alone, that we would come to him by faith and faith alone with nothing in our hands, that we would lay down our sin and our shame, trusting that he's paid the price for all of it. And that in gratitude for all of your grace, we would bring our lives into subjection to him for your glory and for our joy. Pray in his name. Amen.